Welcome to Dumb Love. I'm Sally Brooks. And I'm Jen O'Neill Smith. And this is a podcast about all the dumb things that people will do for love. Welcome to episode 109. I'm feeling fine. Yeah, look at that. And look, I'm all <laughs> plugged in. My microphone is plugged in. Nice. Uh, my headphones uh, are plugged in. I triple checked. <laughs> all the cords are right. <laughs> I'm so proud of you. I'm so proud of you. Did you hear that apparently the lawn my lawn man is here? No, I can't. <laughs> they hear just it at start all. out. You can't hear it? Nope. No. It's like you know, um, don't so, ever complain about having a lawn man, Sally. I know. I was I <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember the movie The Lawnmower uh, Man? I, I remember like that movie was one of those like HBO movies that I would watch over and over and over again. You know? I don't think like, I've Mac ever seen and it. Me and the Lawnmower Man. Really? <laughs> no. Oh. And then that one movie with like Eddie Furlong. Brain Scan. Do you remember Brain Scan? <laughs> no, I don't oh, remember Brain Scan. Yeah. yeah that was know, like one of anything. those like mid-90s HBO movies that came out all the time. Back yeah, when you we couldn't DVR things or TV. We didn't have HBO. We didn't have cable. Oh. So we I my choice was either cable or my own phone line. Uh-huh. And I picked my own phone line. Well, of so. course. <laughs> and Sally, that's probably why you're a lawyer. And I'm a piece I, of shit. It's probably why I hate talking on the phone now. <laughs> I've used up all my phone talking. <laughs> all your in the minutes. mid 90s. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think you only have so many. Yeah, I mean, I had my own like answering machine. That was like the best thing was making my own answering machine messages. When I moved uh, to Georgia from New York, my friends and I used to record ourselves in a cassette tapes and then mail it to each other. Yes, Aaron and I did really? that for a while, like in college. That's so cool. Yeah, like those little, yeah, little teeny tiny cassette tapes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, like I have one of Aaron recording herself riding her bike. She was a nurse's aide. This was like after, so like, I guess maybe it was after college. And she would record on the way there and like almost got <laughs> almost gotten a wreck. Um, as she's recording, you can like hear her like, and then I would record as I was like driving in Chicago, like out to work. Just like we would just like chat. And now we do that with um, Marco Polo. I was going to say, so yeah. we just started doing my, you know, my good friend Kristen moved to Portland. And so we just started, uh, me and uh, two of my other friends, Jill and Carly, yeah. um, the four of us, uh, Marco Polo. And at first it was very hesitant. You know how yes. I am with apps and yeah. computers. <laughs> I don't like them. But I actually really like this. It's a good way for us to like stay it, connected. It really does help us stay in touch and stay close. But I yeah, like it's cool because like I got to see a tour of Kristen's new house and then my friend Carly has bought a new mountain chalet. Oh, uh, right. Like A-frame. It's like gorgeous and she's yeah. renovating it. So um, well, I'm like, like able to see yeah, it, it is. It is something different about like. I love when you go to a friend's home who ha- you haven't seen in a while, and then you can like kind of just you're like, oh, now I know what your life looks like. Yeah. I know I can imagine what you're doing during the day. Yeah. 
when I'm stalking you. I'm watching you. <laughs> I know what you're eating. <laughs> <laughs> and it um, looks delicious. It looks amazing. Should we get into quickies? Let's do it. Okay, I'm first. So I have like a medium quickie. Nice. It's like a, a long quickie. Uh, it was one a that licky. I looked at. I, yeah, a licky. <laughs> It's one that I thought about doing as like a long story, but then, you know, it's like you get into it and it's not long enough. But right. um, but I really, I liked the story. So I got my information from ABC.com, uh, an episode of 2020. Ooh. This so, does sound like a licky. Right? <laughs> You're welcome. If it's 2020. 2020. Okay. So, okay. So everything seemed fine on July 20th, 2010, when a 39-year-old Oklahoma woman, Tiffany Bray, hopped into her fiancé, Chad McGuire's pickup truck to go run some errands. She sent him a text around noon asking what he wanted for lunch, but then that was the last he heard from her. And Chad said, I was worried about her. I worried that she'd run off the road and had a wreck. I tried calling several times, and it just went straight to voicemail. So Chad, like, went out and searched for Tiffany and for any sign of the truck that night. And then the next morning, he filed a missing persons report. And the two had what seemed like a great relationship. They were supposed to be married in a couple months. And so for the next four days, police, Chad, friends, family all searched for Tiffany. Family and friends, including this man named Tommy Lewis, who told 2020, people took off work. We spend our time and money searching, trying to assist investigators, giving them any information we could. And then on the fourth day, Chad got a text message from Tiffany. It said, need help. Somewhere in Lawton in dark room. White man, please (gasps) fucking help me. Not sure I can use this again. So Lawton is a city in Oklahoma. It's close to where where, uh, they lived. So, of course, like the Oklahoma State, like the Bureau of of Investigation took the message very seriously. Like this woman disappeared four days and then this crazy text message comes in. And an agent said, when a text message of that nature comes in, that takes it to the forefront of seriousness of what may be going on. Everything had to go on hold. You think? Yeah, while we address this kidnapping. So, you know, Chad is like terrified for Tiffany, but also he is dealing with now he's an immediate suspect. So he said he had one (sighs) investigator ask where the body was. He was super nervous about it. So investigators start searching all of Tiffany's belongings, her computers, anything to find any clue of where she could be. And so then in one of her like old work computers, they found an email exchange between her and a man named Steve, who was from Palestine, Texas. The two met on an internet dating site. Oh, no. So police track this guy Steve's cell phone to a motel in Corpus Christi, Texas. And this is a month, almost a month after she had disappeared, almost a month after this crazy text message came in. So on August 13, 2010, the Oklahoma police converged on this Texas hotel room and they barged in. They were hoping to find Steve and get any information about Tiffany. But what they found instead was Tiffany herself. Steve wasn't even there. She was totally fine. Oh, she my God. She was just watching TV. <gasps> and that is when they knew the whole thing was a hoax. A hoax. Oh, my God. Yeah. So it turned out that Tiffany had not been a victim of kidnapping. She was just a runaway bride. <gasps> yeah. Holy shit. Like, what was she like – what was she going to do? What so, was her game plan? Apparently, she didn't have a game plan. She told 
2020, she made the plan to leave a few days before she did. And instead of going out of town to run errands, she actually took Chad's pickup truck to an Oklahoma City pawn shop and sold this (gasps) heart necklace that he had given her. And then she made this 700-mile-long drive to Texas to meet with this guy, Steve, which is where she had been the whole time. And she said, I mean, Chad was a nice guy. I just was not happy with my life in general. I felt like I couldn't breathe anymore. And so police actually learned that Steve had no idea that Tiffany was missing. He just thought like, oh, this is a woman I met on the internet and we're having a great time. And Tiffany actually said that she too didn't realize that what she would what she had done would like involve the police and cause like How such could a stir. You not? How could you not? Right. I mean, she said, I mean, all I was doing was leaving in my thought. It wasn't against the law to take off and leave and not tell anyone I was going. But then with the after four days, she sees on the news that like she's a missing person, that's yeah, everybody's out searching for her. And that is when she got cold feet about getting cold feet and sent that text message. But of Of course, then she also didn't return. So when police found her, they had spent 685 man hours. Oh, my God. More than $34,000 on the case. And they were like, we have no sympathy for her. So she was arrested for the unauthorized use of Chad's truck and for a false reporting of a crime. And she actually was able to cut a deal with local authorities and didn't serve any jail time as long as she paid back the $34,000 spent on the case. And Chad actually said, he was like, I'm glad she wasn't hurt, but I don't think I'll ever talk to her again because of what she put my family through. It's been pretty rough on all of us. Yeah. So as of, I know, right? So as of 2014, Tiffany was working 60 hours a week as an accountant for a construction firm to pay back. She had to pay like $560 a paycheck. And Chad had said, I've moved on. She's moved on. I'm hoping she does good. And actually, by 2014, she had moved on and not with the guy, Steve. She married Tommy Lewis, who was one of the family friends who helped search for her. Really? Yeah. So he had like helped with the search. He was like a friend from church, apparently. And so when 2020 asked Tommy whether if he was worried that Tiffany wasn't going to show up on their wedding day, he laughed and said, I'd be lying if it didn't cross my mind. Oh, my God. Wow. So that is that a crazy story? Yes. Oh, my God. Like, I just, yeah. I just That, that like really puts a hole in our theory that women don't just leave. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I know. And also just, you know, the I can't imagine what cuz it's he seems like he was I mean, I don't know their whole history obviously, but it seems like by his reaction and his like her him kind of wishing her well, he doesn't seem like he was like an abusive or like No, you and, know what I mean? And like, she says, I mean, she says she was just got cold feet. Like, so you just break up with them. Yeah, break up. You don't just yeah, walk just steal his truck John and walk away. Yeah, yeah, like something. something like that. But like to send a text message like that is just mm-hmm. crazy. And so yeah, I can't believe that she didn't actually harmful. go to jail. Yeah, I know. Oh my gosh, I don't know. I don't know how that Tommy guy could ever married trust her, her, right? Yeah, but maybe she's hot. You know, and her no. is she hot? No, no. 
I don't mean to say so forcefully. She is a plenty attractive, but she's, you know, she's not, not, not get away with like setting someone up as a murderer. Exactly. (laughs) Yes. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Not framing someone for kidnapping. Yeah. Um, Yeah. She's just a regular, like 45 year old woman, you know? (laughs) Hey, 45 year old women are gorgeous. I mean, I know. Because you are. I know. <laughs> You're not 45 yet, are you? Not yet, man. No. <laughs> no, I'm so far from 45. Oh. Uh, um, but even if you were, you would be beautiful. That's right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> um, man, your cookie is going to blow my cookie out of the water. <laughs> But um, my uh, quickie comes from an article for CNN.com written by Rachel Trent. I just thought that this was interesting because this whole article is about how a piece of memorabilia from Prince Charles and Princess Diana's 1981 wedding, which is one of the biggest weddings in history. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. A slice of memorabilia, I should say, is up for auction. Someone is, so out of the 23 wedding cakes that were made for on their wedding day, there is a slice of cake that is still intact. It's 40 years old. The slice of cake, wow. but it's been kept wrapped in plastic and in an old cake tin. And it was sold to the Dominic Winters auctioneers in 2008 on behalf of the Smith family who um, the piece of cake was given to. So the piece of cake was originally given to Moira Smith, who worked at the Clarence House for the Queen Mother. On August 11th this year, they're going to be auctioning off the cake Ooh, Again. let's all tune in. So here <laughs> is what I think is so interesting. Or like, okay, how much do you think this slice of what a 40-year-old slice of wedding cake from one of the most famous weddings that ever was, how much do you think this slice of wedding cake is going? They expect it to sell for in the auction. Okay, I'm gonna say fifty thousand pounds. Say that in American dollars for your American <laughs> listeners. Uh, let me do the quick conversion in my head. Seventy thousand dollars. Seventy thousand dollars. <gasps> no, Wait, is that, that right? Was, is that? Oh. You know, is that what you're saying? <laughs> yes, that's what I'm saying. Yes. <laughs> they are starting the bidding at two hundred and seventy-eight dollars. That's it. That's it. I, I'll buy the cake. <laughs> I'll buy it. It's next week. Like oh it's starting at 278 and they're expecting it to sell for up to $700 is what they're saying in like five different articles that I've read about this. Really? Isn't that insane? Like I totally would have thought that this would be like a million dollar slice of cake. That's amazing. Isn't that amazing? Let's all go buy a little bit of the cake. I'll split it with you guys. They do advise that you don't eat it. They think that it's... <laughs> Since well, I would never eat cake spoiled. anyway. <laughs> but... I mean, that just is incredible to me. I think we should put, let's let's all pile our money in. Let's go get this slice of cake. Let's go get this cake. <laughs> Who can be there for me at this auction? Because I uh, don't live there. So if any yeah. of our um, UK listeners could uh, show up to the Dominic Winter auction uh-huh. for us and yeah. uh, bid on that cake, we'd really appreciate it. And we'd even pay for it in pounds. 
Yeah, see if you can get it down a little, you know? Yeah. I'm thinking 500. Yeah, <laughs> yeah okay. Well, Max, yeah. yeah. Everybody give us five bucks. Yeah, we'll and put it let's in. Let's buy this piece of cake. And let's say if we don't get this piece of cake, we'll just buy a cake. <laughs> then we'll, then we'll just all eat a cake. Everybody's getting, getting cake. Some cake. We're, We're getting, getting cake. some cake. Did you so, listen yeah. to the? Now do you see how dumb my my quickie was compared to yours? I love that quickie. Oh, nice. I I'm like, uh, did you listen to you? I think you told me about this. That you're wrong about series on on Diana. Yeah, it's so good. It is it's so good. good. It's so yeah. Good. Did you listen to the even the rich? Thing about Princess Diana? No, because I can never remember the name. Oh. <laughs> I can never remember, but now I'm going to write it down. All right, well, should we get in to my crazy story? Yeah, let's get into it. Hey, Jen. Hey, Sally. Are you ready for a wild story? Yes. This has got some historical aspects to it. Oh, really? Yeah, kind of. Um, okay, so I got my information from the Miami News Time by Francisco Alvarado, from the New York Daily News by Derek Gregorian, from Wikipedia, from FCIR.org by Tracy Elton, and Jen, from Steve the Harvey. very s- – <laughs> Steve Harvey! No, almost the same. I got it from – our favorite TV show, Who the Bleep Did I Marry? Oh, nice. I yeah. love a Who the Bleep Did I Marry. Yeah. Because it's never somebody good. <laughs> it's never someone good. They're never like, oh my God. And he was- What? <laughs> Who did I fucking marry? It turns out he was a prince. <laughs> I thought he was a pauper. <laughs> so Anna Margarita Martinez was born in 1960 in Cuba, only one year after Castro's Cuban revolution toppled a military dictatorship and eventually turned it into the Communist Party of Cuba. Anna's parents had separated when she was only a year old, and so she and her mother were kind of on their own. And Anna's mother worked at the front desk of Cuba's telephone company in Havana, but then when Anna was six, the two defected to New York City. They eventually moved out of the city to New Jersey, and Anna's mom remarried and had another child. And so now the family of four, along with Anna's grandmother, who lived in New York City, were living a pretty comfortable life. Like, they would do things like take trips to the Catskills to, like, fish and camp. And when Anna turned 16, her mom and stepdad were able to surprise her with a new blue Mustang. And they wanted to reward Anna because she was this quiet, studious girl. Her mom says she was never a party girl. She would come home after school, do her homework, and practice her flute. I know. And so when she was around 10, Anna was able to reestablish a relationship with her dad, who by now lived in Miami. And so in 1979, the year after she graduated from high school, she decided to move down to to Miami. And part was because she wanted to be near her dad. She wanted to kind of start a new life. But she also had met a boy when she was 14 that she was in love with. And so when she was 19, she got married. Of course, like 19-year-old relationship, it didn't last long. So the two divorced just three years later in 1982. And so that year when she divorced her first husband, while she was visiting her mother in New Jersey, she met a man named Jalal Casso. And she said that he was great until I married him. Oh. And apparently at that point he became very possessive. He was he was both physically and emotionally abusive. 
And the two were married for seven years. They had two kids. And she said the final straw came when he pinned her up against a wall. And her son, who was like little, he was like maybe three or four, got in between them. The husband shoved the kid down. And so she said that was the end of the marriage. So in 1989, Anna left him. She moved back to Miami. And she was now – she was not even 30. She was twice divorced. She had two small children. She was working two or three jobs at a time just to keep a roof over their heads. So she had no social life. All she did was go to church. And she was understandably very mistrustful of men at this time. And she hadn't – didn't have the time or the desire to date anyone. And that was until one Sunday in 1992, she was – With her kids and her grandmother, they were at church at University Baptist Church in Coral Gables, Florida, and she immediately noticed a new guy. His name was Juan Pablo Roque, and she noticed him not only because he was incredibly handsome, like everybody said, and I, it is true, I'll post pictures, that he was like a Richard Gere lookalike, but he was also kind of like newly famous in the Cuban community because Only a few days earlier, he had been all over the news on TV reports because he was this Cuban Air Force major who had swam 17 miles through shark-infested waters to Guantanamo Bay seeking political asylum. So he was this brand new Cuban refugee. And so he was like known all over Miami already. At the end of the church service, one of Juan Pablo's cousins introduced him to Anna Margarita. And he said, has anyone ever told you you have a beautiful smile? And she kind of joked back. She was like, yeah, all the time. (laughs) You're not the first one. And she was like, you know, there was a mutual attraction, but nothing really happened for a little while. She said he was this kind of macho guy. He seemed like he was very fearless. He was passionately anti-Castro. He like criticized the Cuban government every opportunity, which was pretty in line with what Anna Margarita and a lot of the... Cuban exiled community felt. And so over the next couple months, the two saw each other at evening Bible classes, but they still didn't talk that much. But then the Friday before Memorial Day in 1992, some of the church members threw a party and Anna Margarita was like, all right, I'm going to chat with this guy. And Mm -hmm. it led to like dancing at the party. And then they went to a nightclub and they danced some more. And from there, their relationship kind of evolved from this friendship to a courtship. And Anna says, we didn't really date per se. He wasn't the type to make take me out to dinner or buy me flowers, but he was there for me and the kids. He mowed my lawn, painted my house, fixed my car, and we enjoyed dancing together. Those and are that, acts of service. Yeah, I was like, attractive. I would rather have those things <laughs> than some flowers. Yeah, and so she said, that's how he won my heart. And so actually within six months of meeting, Juan Pablo had proposed and moved in with Anna and her children. But Anna was, like, not in a hurry to get married again. So it actually wasn't until three years after they met that Juan Pablo and Anna got married on April 1st, 1995. Anna said, he gave me a sense of security. He gave me stability. And Juan Pablo was, like, quickly became a big part of Miami's Cuban exile community. And the largest exile organization called the Cuban American National Foundation financed his memoirs, which he named The Deserter. And in it, he slams Cuban officials. There are all these photos in the book showing Juan Pablo interacting with all these anti-Castro members of Congress. But even though he was like, he was big in this community and he was like this former military pilot, he had a hard time finding steady work in the U.S. He worked a variety of odd jobs. But what 
he seemed to be passionate about was volunteering with this organization called Brothers to the Rescue. And so Brothers to the Rescue would fly over the ocean between the U.S. and Cuba looking for people who were fleeing Cuba on rafts and rescue them. And basically, they described their mission as supporting the efforts of Cuban people to free themselves from dictatorship through the use of active nonviolence. And in the early 1990s, this group flew hundreds of missions over the Florida Straits, and they spotted more than 17,000 Cuban rafters and helped wow. save their lives. Yeah, because, you know, people would would leave on these, like, homemade rafts, yeah. and a lot of people died trying to make the trip. This was before the time when if the U.S. Coast Guard found you, they would they wouldn't send you back, but now they now that is what they do. But yeah. so they would also do things like they would fly these these uh air they were like flying their own airplanes. They would fly over Cuban airspace and drop anti-government leaflets onto like for on like the streets of Havana so that people would see them and know that they could come to the US. And Juan Pablo had struck up a friendship with Jose Basalto, who was the president of Brothers to the Rescue. And Basalto said, I welcomed him like he was my brother. He said that during the time between Juan Pablo and Anna's engagement in their wedding, that Juan Pablo was always talking about marrying Anna, which he thought was very sweet. And because he was an ex-pilot, Juan Pablo was soon flying these search and rescue missions with the other pilots. And actually, when Juan Pablo's older brother escaped Cuba by raft, Brothers to the Rescue sent the planes to go search for him. But by the time they found him, the U.S. Coast Guard had already got to him and they sent him back to Cuba. Wow. Yeah. So because Juan Pablo was having a hard time finding work, Balsalto and some of his friends hired him as a personal trainer. So this like this group he was a part of was like a huge thing in his life. And like even though he didn't have a big career yet, Anna thought that Juan Pablo was the ideal husband. He doted on her and on her two kids, and her kids, who you know had no relationship with their dad, thought of him as their father. Mm-hmm. And Anna said, he went everywhere with me. He did the dishes. He cleaned the house. He was very protective, very attentive to me. About a year after they got married, Juan Pablo told Anna that he was going to the Florida Keys to help a client move a yacht. And Anna felt really weird about it. She was like, I don't know why. I felt really surprised. He never left Miami, and I just felt very uneasy about it. But like he had never done anything to make me distrust him. So what was I supposed to do? Mm-hmm. So she asked him not to go, but he was like, I have to go. This is like going to make extra money. And so she just didn't really fight it. Um, but she had a bad feeling about it. So he left at like 3 a.m. in the morning and he woke Anna up, kissed her goodbye. And she kind of teased him in Spanish. She was like, She called him JP. So she was like, JP, you don't love me. And he was like, why do you say that? And she says, because you're leaving me here all alone. And he was like, I promise I'll have my cell phone on so you can contact me. But when she woke up in the morning, she tried calling him and she couldn't reach him. She called him about 50 times and he didn't answer, which was very odd for him. Mm -hmm. And so she started panicking and she went through his closets and drawers and discovered that almost All of his clothes were gone, but he had left his wallet in the dresser. And she was like, who goes – weird. Right. She was like, who goes anywhere without a wallet? She said she became immediately hysterical. She thought he's gone to Cuba because 
there was this underground human rights meeting that was taking place in Cuba that week. And Anna thought maybe, you know, he was so anti-Cuban government that maybe he was going there, um, but he hadn't told her because he wanted to protect her. And, you know, friends were like, do you think he maybe like ran off with another woman? But she was like, no, he's definitely gone to like go agitate in Cuba or to protest against the government. Mm-hmm. But so she went out to his Jeep and she in the Jeep, she found his keys like to the, to the house, to the Jeep, to every like she had her own set of keys, but she found his set of keys. Weird. And his cell phone. So now he's gone. He has no wallet, no car, no keys, no cell phone. So then the next day, after Juan Pablo disappeared, Cuban missiles shot down two planes that belonged to the brothers to the rescue. And four pilots were killed in the attack. Carlos Costa, Armando Alejandre. Junior Mario de la Pena and Pablo Morales. And the group's president, who was Juan Pablo's friend, Jose Basalto, and two volunteers were the only survivors because their plane managed to escape. And then the Cuban government claimed that they'd had a Brothers to the Rescue pilot in custody. And Anna was like, it's it's gotta be Juan Pablo. Like, you know, right? Like that is that makes sense where that's where he is. Mm-hmm. But Balsalto was like, no, he hadn't been a part of this mission. So she's like now even more confused. She's like, what happened to him? And she says that like, while she had been happy with Juan Pablo when he disappeared, there were some things that, you know, of course, like now she's like looking for anything that had been off. And she was like, there are some things that seem suspicious in retrospect. So several times she said she had caught him in small lies, like nothing big, but like little things that didn't make sense to lie about. Mm -hmm. And he'd also been hanging out a lot with this other Brothers to the Rescue pilot. Like sometimes she would come in and she would find them speaking in Russian. (gasps) And when she asked him about it, he was like, oh, well, we learned to speak Russian in the Cuban military, which is true. And he said, we, you know, we just want to practice with each other so we don't forget the language. And we're just, we're not talking about anything big. We're just talking about like, brothers to the rescue missions. And uh, and she said he'd also become a bit controlling and paranoid. Like he was always looking over his shoulder. But she was like, but at the same time, he was still very doting and sweet. Mm-hmm. And so it, it seemed, you know, it was like she didn't really know what to think. He had like actually started waking up in the middle of the night. He'd be like panicked and he seemed very stressed. And then three days after Juan Pablo's disappearance, local and national news reporters swarmed Anna Margarita's front yard and a reporter comes to her door and is like, turn on CNN. But before she can turn on CNN, FBI agents are at her house. Anna says, that's when I found out that JP was working for the FBI. Oh my God. So apparently the FBI had been using her husband to infiltrate a Cuban American paramilitary group that was involved in like drugs and firearm trafficking And he had also been providing information about the brothers to the rescue. And at this point, like... Oh, so he was, like, like giving him... He was a double agent. He was... Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, they were just, like, kind of a a charity group. But I think also because they were picking up these Cuban refugees and bringing them back to the U.S. instead of where the Coast Guard would send them back to Cuba... They were kind of interested in what they were up to. Uh huh. Um, so, you know, Anna is like, I don't know what to think. She said it finally made sense how her husband could afford things like this Rolex that he loved so much when he was like 
could barely hold down a steady job because he was being paid by the FBI as an informant. But the FBI was there because they had no idea where Juan Pablo was either. So it turns out that, like, the truth of what happened to Juan Pablo is even crazier than him being an FBI agent. Because when Anna finally turned on CNN, she gets a huge shock because there is Juan Pablo. He's alive. He's in Havana. He's shown, like, getting off a plane just like casuals can be. He's wearing his Ray-Bans. She can see he still is wearing his wedding ring and a chain uh, and a chain with a cross that she had given him along with his, like, beloved Rolex. And at first, Anna's like, oh, my God, he's been captured and forced to return to Cuba because she's like, otherwise she didn't understand why her husband, who was, like, so anti-Castro, like, why he would return to Cuba. But soon she got her answers because that same day, Juan Pablo gave an interview that was also shown on CNN. And on that interview, he denounced the U.S., Mm. declared his allegiance to Castro, and claimed that the Brothers to the Rescue is a terrorist cell. So it turns out that he was not in Cuba as like a captive or as an agitator, but he had actually for the whole time he'd been in the U.S., while he had been working for the FBI – he was a spy for the Cuban government. Oh my God. So he was like a double, he was triple a agent. He was a double, triple. He was like, yeah. So he a like, fucking liar. Yeah. He a hadn't liar. been a defector from the Cuban military. He had actually been sent to the US as a Cuban agent to gather intel on Whoa. the Cuban exile community in Miami. And like his job had been to infiltrate brothers to the rescue, who Cuba considered a terrorist organization. And he said, on this interview that Cuba was justified in shooting down the brothers to the rescue planes saying that they had basically stopped a terrorist attack on Cuba and almost like more devastating than finding out that her husband was a double spy (laughs) during the interview. Juan Pablo was still wearing his Rolex, but his wedding band was no longer on his finger. And they actually asked, they were like, so you were married in in Miami? And he refused to talk about it. Like, he didn't even acknowledge that he had been married. But when the interviewer asked what he would miss most about Miami, Juan Pablo replied, my Jeep Cherokee. (gasps) Yes. Oh, my God. What a fuck face. I know. So Anna, like, at first she was like, he's been brainwashed. Like, this is a man I loved and spent the last four years with. Like, she just couldn't believe that he had been a spy. But to everyone else, it was obvious that Juan Pablo, it had been Juan Pablo who had provided the information that allowed the Cuban government to shoot down the brothers to the rescue planes and carried the and killed these four U.S. citizens. But eventually, though, it sunk in. She realized that, like, his whole time in Miami, including their marriage, had been a part of his mission. Like, she had been used to establish his cover story. Anna said it was it was devastating. She said, you know, he told me he loved me and I believed him. He was, I see now, the best actor of all time. Wow. She said, yeah, she said, he used me and my children for a Machiavellian mission. I felt very profound pain. My children didn't just use lose their stepdad, who they loved a lot. They lost their mother, Sorry. too. I was in a state of shock and trauma so great that I don't remember much from those days after he disappeared. My children were abandoned because I could not be there for them. Emotionally, psychologically, I was destroyed. Which, I mean, you can imagine, right? Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. So once she came to grips with what happened, Anna got angry, like as you would. So she decided that she was not going to take this ultimate betrayal lying down. 
She, after she got an annulment from Juan Pablo in 1999, Anna sued the Cuban government for rape. And because in Florida, rape is defined as sex without consent. And because her consent to sex with Juan Pablo was gotten through fraud, she said this was basically rape. And with her lawyer, she claimed that the Cuban government was responsible for her spouse's deceit. Like basically they were the ones who told him to marry her. Everything he did was on their orders. And she said, as a result, she had suffered debilitating emotional and physical trauma. And the Cuban government never contested the lawsuit. So in 2001, Anna actually won by default. And a federal, yeah, a federal judge in Florida found Cuba liable for Juan Pablo's actions, saying he was, that the judge was especially offended that Cuba, a country that disregards human rights, has callously trampled on the rights of one of our own citizens on our own soil in furtherance of a vile criminal conspiracy. Anna was awarded $27.1 million. (gasps) Holy shit. Yeah. But of course, collecting the money from the Cuban government has not been easy. So basically- in 2005, George Bush, when he was president, ordered that she be paid $200,000 from frozen Cuban accounts. And then her attorneys have kind of gone after these. Anytime something is seized from Cuba, they're like, that is her money. Like mm-hmm. Cuba owes her this. In 2015, she sued J.P. Morgan Chase for because they were like hiding some of Cuban's money, Cuba's money. Wow. So in 1999, um, the same year that she sued Juan Pablo, a federal grand jury indicted him and four other members of what was called the WASP Network, which was a, this Cuban spy ring that he was a part of, um, for conspiracy to commit murder in the shooting down of the Brothers of Rescue planes. Juan Pablo is actually the only one of those guys who escaped to Cuba. The others, including the guy who Anna had seen Juan Pablo talking Russian to, Mm-hmm. were arrested and jailed as spies. Oh, my God. So meanwhile, Juan Pablo is back in Cuba, and he was, like, hailed as a hero. He was promoted to lieutenant colonel in the military. He was given a military house. And obviously, Cuba has refused to extradite him to the U.S. to face charges. But soon, his like after, you know, after he got back, his celebrity wore off pretty quickly. And basically, at the age of 40, he was forced to retire and was kind of forgotten by the Cuban government that he gave up his life to help. In 2012, Juan Pablo was interviewed by Tracy Eaton with the Florida Center for Investigative Reporting. He was now 57. He was living with his girlfriend in this tiny Havana apartment. He was trying to sell that beloved Rolex for cash because he was broke. And he said at that time, he said he was sorry for the four people that were killed, although he still says he has nothing to do with it. He said, if I could travel in a time machine, I'd get those boys off the plane that were shot down. The sister for one of the pilots said, speaking for the families, my family in particular, we're still looking forward to the day when Juan Pablo faces U.S. courts on his outstanding indictment. And Anna Margarita Martinez, of course, says she doesn't believe any of Juan Pablo's supposed regrets. She Mm -hmm. said he thought he was going to be somebody in Cuba, and he's a nobody. He tasted freedom in the U.S., and now he has none. He can't even say what he really feels for fear of repercussions. He sold his soul to the devil and is now paying a high price. I pity him. Oh, my God. So again, Yeah. So if you want to, like, watch kind of like a fictionalized version of this, there was a Netflix movie based on this story called The Wasp Network, and apparently nobody (laughs) – 
involved was happy with how it was portrayed because like people in the Cuban exile community are like it, it totally minimizes and glorifies what these spies did. And Juan Pablo was like, it doesn't represent me fairly. He said, exaggerate some part of his story while downplaying others. And Anna Margarita actually sued Netflix and the filmmakers because she's in this film. She's shown as kind of like this total party girl who's living this like drug fueled lifestyle and uh, in reality, she's like this church-going single mother who is working two jobs to get by. So that just I like has just I happened. I remember seeing a preview for that. Yeah, it's pretty. It's pretty recent. So yeah. So yeah. Have to check it out, dude. And like, it kind of reminds me of, um, you know, we talked about the um, the uh, Dr. Macaroni story that we did. Yeah. Um, um, I messaged you the other day. I was like, oh my God, you, you know, the Dr. Death yes. have, um, podcast? Well, they're doing a season three and it's based on Dr. Macaroni. Dr. Macaroni. Macaroni. Yeah. It's Macchiarini, but we can right. call him whatever the fuck we want because he's a liar. <laughs> he's a liar. Well, I bet We're his name really liars. is Dr. Macaroni. It probably it is. is. <laughs> Man, that's a wild story it is a wild story and i i feel like uh you know i apologize to everybody who is anybody out there who's like a student of cuban history i really don't know very much so i'm sorry if anything i got wrong i tried to look up stuff i didn't know but (laughs) you know you know you tried your best i tried my best you guys great job thank you sally jen are you ready for a love story yeah, I'm ready for a love story. Great. This is um, a very special love story about a couple in love who is also in love with beer. Ooh. A certain kind of beer. Um, so this is an article. Uh, I got this information from an article from parkrapidsenterprise.com written by Celeste Edenloff. Uh-huh. Um, Dustin Kujela and Allie Coleman met five years ago through an app called Tinder. Uh huh. I've heard of it. It's a dating app. <laughs> uh, they actually, uh, uh, Allie said in the article that she said we're kind of a modern love story. So they met through Tinder, but they actually and they talked a lot through Snapchat. But what's funny is they actually went to the same community college at uh, Alexandria Technical in Minnesota. Oh, like when they met or? Um, when, yeah, like they didn't realize that they went to the same college when they went met on Tinder. Oh, okay. So a lot of their family and friends think that that's how they met, but they actually met um, through apps. Uh-huh. They don't think that anymore. Well, yeah, because yeah. this article just came out. <laughs> yeah. Um, but so in, in 2016, they had their first date, um, which was a dinner and a movie. And and the dinner was at Arby's and the movie was Bad Grandpa, which actually <laughs> sounds like it an sounds awesome date. Amazing. Give I me some know. curly fries. <laughs> Yeah, a ridiculous movie sounds amazing. It does. (laughs) Things went well. And in February of 2020, they ended up getting engaged and they had decided to plan their wedding. It was going to be in Minnesota and it was going to be be on September 4th, 2021. So they Uh had their wedding date. Okay. Um, You know, because they pushed it out to September 21st because they were worried about COVID. Right. They thought that that might be far enough out. Uh So um, they, (laughs) I know. Surprise. (laughs) Sorry. Didn't we all? Uh, So their date was set 
and they had venue picked out and they had a photographer booked and, you know, everything was lining up for their September wedding. And then when Allie was on Instagram, she caught a post by Bush Beer on Instagram because she follows Bush Beer because she loves Bush Beer. Okay. And so her and Dustin both do. They're huge fans of Anheuser Bush Beer, which I guess, did you know that it's called, that people call it Bush Latte? No, I have no, no idea. <laughs> well, that's funny. Instead so pe- of like, instead of bush light, I guess. So she, in her engagement photos, they actually wore bush uh-huh. latte t-shirts um, for their engagement photos. Oh, and really? She said that she added the t-shirts as part of the deal because she wanted um, Dustin to be excited about doing these engagement photos. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So oh, it's man. so funny. So she sees this post <laughs> by Bush Beer that says, get hitched on our farm. And what it is, it's where like couples enter a contest. You just have to go on there and post a picture as a couple and explain how Bush Beer brought you guys, to brought them together. Yeah. And then hashtag it Bush Farm Wedding and hashtag contest on social media. And it, the winners would get an all expenses paid wedding on an Anheuser Bush farm. And so she immediately was like, we got to enter this. So she goes on, on Instagram and posts a picture of them wearing the Bush Latte t-shirts and wrote this. Bush. <laughs> Dot, dot, dot. I'm going to need everyone to quiet down, take your seats, and listen up. Dustin and I have been madly in love since 2016, and you want to know the secret to our relationship? Bush light, baby. (laughs) (laughs) I love her already. I do, too. Uh, Let me give a few points on how Bush light has brought us closer together. Bushlight accompanies us to just about every social gathering. It's the third wheel that never gets left out. The glue <laughs> for a good time. I mean, we're talking late night, late Friday nights with our friends, hot Saturday afternoons on the pontoon, and slow Sundays with our families. When in a group or just Dustin and I, Bushlight brings us together for a good old time. <laughs> Bushlight isn't just a beer. Bushlight is a lifestyle. I mean, she needs, she needs, she's she's a really great writer. I was like, she needs a marketing job for Bush. Agent. (laughs) First get us agents, but then. Yeah. And then we'll get you an agent. And then we'll get you an agent. Yeah. (laughs) And she said, I mean, have you ever met people who drink Bush Light? Question mark. Along with being some of the hardest working people I know, they also know how to have fun. How can't you bond with someone who is living that same bushlight lifestyle as you? <laughs> Work hard, play harder. Drink bushlight, sleep when you can, repeat. Not an overly complicated life, but a rewarding one, especially when you're doing it with the love of your life. Have you ever experienced the pure joy of coming home from work, looking at your sweetie, and you're both like, are you thinking what I'm thinking? <laughs> And then all of a sudden, you're out on the deck enjoying your ice-cold bush lights, listening to your favorite music and talking about life. Because I have. And almost nothing. (laughs) I love her. I love her. Uh, Because I have. And almost nothing compares. Bush light has been there for these small, intimate moments in our life. Long story short. Is it, Allie? Is that a long story short? Uh, Long story short. 
Bushlight has brought us together through monumental moments like our engagement, intimate moments, our engagement, intimate moments like that beer after work and everything in between. I'm not sure we can ever thank Bushlight enough for what they've done for our relationship. Without them, we'd be dull, boring, and most of all, thirsty. <laughs> it's sober. <laughs> yeah, it's sober. Dustin and I are getting married this year no matter what, and I can't think of a better way to celebrate our marriage than on a bushlight farm. Whatever happens or not, I promise you our marriage will always be between us, God, and bushlight <laughs> in no particular order. Oh, Hashtag bra. bush farm wedding. Bravo, Ellie. Giving you a standing ovation, Allie. You deserve it. I mean, absolutely. But, you know, the chance, there's so many people enter this contest. So, like, the chances of winning, even though this was beautifully written, are very small, you know? So, you can imagine her surprise when she got an email notifying them that they were in the top 10. So, then they were required to do a virtual um, interview via Zoom. And she said that it was like, a quick interview, but it went well. And then on April 21st, which was two weeks after she had entered into this contest, Allie received an email from Anheuser-Busch that said, you brew us away with your love story. Oh, bro. See, they were probably like, <laughs> how are we going to, are we going to talk this, we this brilliant woman to this? Yeah. We're going to, everybody get in here. What do you yeah. got? You brew us away with your love story. I feel like and I so, know I know a job she could take. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, give her a job. Never <laughs> writes those emails. <laughs> you need Allie. And then um, so they were um so they were notified that they were one of the three winning couples. So so along with them, two other couples won a Bush Farm wedding. And Allie said it was pure excitement at first. I was wild it was wild to think we won. I was sitting on the couch when I got the email and I could feel my heart pounding. And so they were going to be given, you know, as winners, they would get a $35,000 budget um, with $5,000 immediately going to pay for the venue. And then out of the remaining $30,000, the couple also received a $1,500 prepaid Visa gift card that could be used on whatever they wanted, wedding related or not. Oh. So just like extra. Yeah. She was super excited, obviously, but then she the wedding... The farm is in Idaho and they're from Minnesota. So she was like, how am I going to get my family there? And so she asked them if they could possibly change locations to the farm in Fargo. I guess that's closer to them. But they, um, they said that they couldn't. So, but they were like, you know what, screw it. And they ended up making like a whole vacation out of like her and her family and friends. Like it was a smaller wedding, but they ended up making a whole vacation out of driving to and from Idaho. Yeah. And Allie and Dustin stayed in Idaho after the wedding um, for their honeymoon. And they like, you know, uh, explored the state before going back to Minnesota. And they said that the wedding was a fun and fabulous day. Allie said it was laid back. It was a laid back, intimate wedding. And Dustin said that um, winning the wedding and having a wedding planner really helped to take the stress off of the day, which, yeah. Yeah, that Not would. Having, I imagine that would. Sure <laughs> I mean, would. I don't know, but I imagine. <laughs> he said, we were able to relax, go on a trip, have fun, party, and get married, and we didn't have to pay for anything. Yeah, that, uh, yeah. that would take the stress that would off. definitely take the stress <laughs> off. Um, but, and Allie said, the whole thing, it was really magical. I'm not going to lie. So I'll post pictures of them and their wedding and everything. It looked like it was a great time. They didn't say a lot of the details about the actual wedding, but it was like a beautiful wedding on a farm. And 
And yeah, it was a small intimate thing, but it was free. And that's the most important part. And did they get a <laughs> lifetime supply of bush light? I, hope? I don't think so. <laughs> it doesn't say anything about free bush light, but I mean, goddamn, give this woman free bush light for life. Right. And give her a job. Yeah. Because you need her as your marketing exec. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I love that. I just thought that was a cute story. That is a, a cute nice, story. uplifting love story for a change. I love it. I love it. Yeah. It's, uh, it's a happy town. It was apple pie. It was great. Yeah. All right. Well, let's get into something dumb and something we love. I think my something dumb – well, this is, you know, the first week of school. Obviously, you know our kids go to the same school. I've gotten to yes. see Jen – as I'm picking up Max and two yell, times this two week. times yell out the window at her like I'm a crazy person. <laughs> yeah. Jen, Jen, it's me, Sally, your friend. <laughs> She's like, and I've Hi. got like the dog on one hand and both kids <laughs> wrangling them. The They're like, who's yelling at me? <laughs> it was me. It was me from a car as I'm waiting <laughs> in the carpool line. Um, so that's fun. I love that. I love that like Max started kindergarten and that's, you know, feels really big and um, it felt very, uh, yeah, it was like, it felt like a very emotional week just sending the little kid to kindergarten. And the thing that's dumb is that we're sending our kids to back to school and, uh, you know, this fucking COVID is, is like oh. zooming back in. Like I read this morning that they're now like over a hundred thousand cases a day. I know. That's what I was – my something done is the same thing. Yeah, so. and I just – I mean, it's like the kids have a – they have a mask mandate, and I'm sure they're doing everything they can to, like, mitigate all, everything. But, like, it's just – I'm just waiting for the shoe to drop. You know, I'm waiting for them to be sent home because, like, it's going to happen, and it's just – it's just feels like it's been so long. We've been doing all the right things, and we're vaccinated but my kid can't get vac- vaccinated, and I'm just scared for him, and I'm scared for everybody. I know. Uh, I yeah. know. I like. I feel like I'm just scared to go back into lockdown. I'm just not ready yeah. for it. I didn't even really get out of lockdown. I barely did. It was yeah. like, you know, I like my whole summer was spent just like work, work, working. But yeah. other than that, like, I haven't done like. My kids haven't been able to go anywhere or see anything or do anything. They've still been living that lock, like that yeah. life. And then the idea of putting them in, back into a, a stricter lockdown, it just sounds, it feels like we're underwater. And, yes. Um, we're drowning. And it, it's so, uh, it's such a shitty feeling. I know. Like I, you know, it was like, it's just kind of like crept up. I mean, it's happening so fast. It's like, we all thought we, well, we're, vaccinated so we're gonna be fine and everything's yeah. going down and it seems all right and then it's just like the last several weeks it's like oh no nothing's fine nothing's fine it's like all getting worse and I mean like even I went to I did a show like last weekend and then I mean I told you but it was like the next day they're like oh by the way somebody at the show who was vaccinated got COVID and then we're all like oh, shit yeah I, sh- I know I shouldn't be inside with people like it just is um yeah, it feels feels scary again. It does. I know. And now um, it feels like there's no backup. Like there's no – I don't know. I feel like those schools don't really have a plan for what's going to happen. No, and that's what's crazy too is that we just live through it and yeah. there's still not going to be a plan. Yeah. that's. You know? I mean there's like – yeah, there's like nothing in place. I just – yeah. So anyway, that feels scary. So for anybody else that's happening to or is about to happen to, 
I was texting with um, Diane Gallagher, who from Rock the Hi, Cash Diane. Bar. Yeah, just and she was saying that. I mean, she's in in Texas, Texas, and she's like, yeah, they start back next week, and you know, they she has friends who've gotten just gotten it recently, and it's just it feels very scary. They can't even have a mask mandate, so. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I feel scared again. So me too. I mean, the only, and this is probably like, I I'm reluctant to even say it, but I feel like everybody that I know that is vaccinated that has gotten it, Mm -hmm. it's been kind of like a, what they've described as like a summer cold. Yeah. And so, like, please get vaccinated, please, mm-hmm. just for your own safety, because it, it seems like the people that are getting it, if they are vaccinated, it's um, not as uh, harsh, Yeah, and it's a quick recovery, but the people that are not vaccinated- Like it, our children. Yeah. It just, it feels like it's taking them- and adults that are not that are mm-hmm. not vaccinated that are getting it, it's like it's deadly. Yeah. And oh god. Yeah. I know. So uh, be cool, man. Get vaccinated if you can. Yeah. And uh, you know, we'll I guess we'll cross the we'll, we'll we'll figure it out when it gets to it. But right now, it just feels like we're just waiting. I know for everything to fall apart again. I know. <laughs> um, god. Yeah, uh, so something I love. <laughs> you tried pliables. They're these delicious acai bowls. They're um, bananas and honey and peanut butter. They're delicious. I just had one for lunch. <laughs> uh, no, I have not. <laughs> Is that going to fix anything, Jen? You don't even have to. You, you can order online. Just walk up to the window and pick it up. <laughs> Healthy, fast, convenient. Oh, well, you know what? I've totally forgotten about all my problems now. <laughs> Sounds great. <laughs> Have you watched Fuckboy Island on HBO Max? It's riveting. It actually is pretty funny because Nikki Glaser hosts it and she's pretty hilarious. Um, yeah. But yeah. Guys, guys, guys. We love you. We love ya. <laughs> we love you guys. Uh, you know, get in touch with us. Like, get, get, just talk us down from the ledge if you'd like. Uh, you can email us at dumblovepod at gmail.com. You can uh, get on our socials at dumblovepodcast, all of them. Uh, and, you know, we'd love just tell a friend. You know what? Here's what I'd like for you guys to do. If you're on Facebook and someone's like, hey, I like this I like podcast just like uh you know suggest dumb love suggest yeah. dumb love to some Taylor, people if, give them a link and if uh, you're not gonna get vaccinated the least you can do is promote our podcast <laughs> <laughs> it's the Come least on, America you can do. <laughs> uh, even Canada Canada listens. Yeah. Come on, Canada. Come on, Canada. Promote tell your friends. Tell your friends <laughs> about us. Oh, man. Thank you guys so much for listening. Um, we dumb love you so much. And please get out there safely and do something dumb for love. Dumb, da dum, 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 d